Hey all you cool cats and kittens, it's me Evan and I'm here to talk to you about a film that I really, really love. The movie is Pride and it's a BBC flick from 2014 that is set in 1984 to 1985 between London and a small Welsh coal mining village. Uh, this is going to be shown at Red Ink on April 15th and it's super good so I highly recommend showing up. Pride at Work, which I am a member of, is putting it on and not only are we all super cute, but it's also really great and an important organization for the LGBTQ labor force. So you should really come through, especially if you haven't been to Red Ink yet. So if you're a history buff, which I am not, you possibly already know the very true story behind this film. I didn't know about the strike until I saw this in theaters when it came out. But a quick goog will tell you that in 1984, a dude named Arthur Scargill led the National Union of Mine Workers in a massive strike against the UK National Coal Board. And a demon disguised as an old white conservative lady with distinctively British teeth named Margaret Thatcher was the prime minister at the time and was a very vocal opponent of really anything good, including labor unions. She sent a ton of police to violently break up picket lines and caused widespread pit closures. This meant that not only were these families of mine workers condemned to starve and freeze to death, but also now a nation that relies on coal for fuel, ew, is facing an energy crisis. Enter the gays. In London, a saucy group of queer activist types led by very cute and brooding communist Mark Ashton start the group LGSM, Lesbians and Gays Supporting Miners. Mark is seen and uh, like totally blowing off his one night stand and he's watching the news about the strike on TV and then he grabs a bunch of buckets he just happens to have. Like, is that a British thing? I don't know. Um, we, we watched Traveling the Chocolate Factory last night and I realized that Charlie's last name is Bucket. That might be a conspiracy. I don't know. Uh, anyway, he, Mark, Mark grabs buckets and he heads on down to the Gay Pride Parade to raise money for the struggling miners. Simultaneously, we have... Joe is like a fresh little 20-year-old Twinkie uh, who is in his parents' suburban floral home in Bromley, a boring borough of southeast London. He's getting a camera for his birthday. Jojo is a baby gay on the brink of coming out of the closet, and he sneaks on down to the parade where he literally bumps into Mike, who is a bookish glassesy type, my favorite who is struggling to hold up a banner by himself. So he enlists Joe to grab the other side of said banner. And it's kind of hard to be subtle when you're holding up a massive gay pride sign. And Joe gets kind of sheepish and Mike laughs and he's like, you know, it's really time to get over that. Just then, Marky Mark and his pompadour show up with these buckets and the apparent crew of friends rolls their eyes as they abandon their original plan to follow their more or less unofficial leader who seems to have a habit of giving his friends this kind of whiplash. I guessed that he was a Libra, but nope, I looked it up, he's a Taurus, and that would have been my second guess. Anyway, there's a cute after party, and can I say a gay dance party in the 1980s England is like where I belong? Um... The, uh, Joe befriends a girl in a, like a fashion, like a fashion lesbian, you know, you know, you know who I'm talking about? A cigarette smoking fashion lesbian named Steph, who's hiding in a stairwell from a girl who broke her heart at a Smiths concert. The Smiths, of course, are a big part of this soundtrack and it sucks because Morrissey sucks, but also the songs make sense in time. 
and are good. And I'm having flashbacks to when I had just turned 16 and would take my dad's car to the Baton Rouge Public Library to listen to Louder Than Bombs and dream of meeting my own fashion lesbian to fall in love with. Not worth the racism, though. Anyway, Steph is part of Mark's crew, so Joe follows her to the after-after party at the adjacent bookstore, Gaze the Word, owned by a couple of elder gays, Jonathan and Gethin. And Gethin is hot priest from Fleabag, and I assure you, he's just as hot here. So Mark is like, y'all, you know how we usually get harassed and assaulted by cops? Have you noticed that there's been, like, a slight downtick in that lately? Anybody know why? It's because they're fucking with the striking minors now instead. So we, knowing what that's like, should show solidarity and raise some money and awareness for the cause. So LGSM is born. They raise bucket money on the streets, and then they're looking for a group to send the funds to, but they keep getting hung up on because homophobia. Then they get through to a lodge in Anthruin, Wales. It took me a really long time to figure out how to pronounce that, and I still don't know if it's right. We'll just call it the Delice Valley Mining Community. But they call this spot, and it's a funny scene of, like, a phone ringing in the foreground, and in the background, this is a little old lady with big-ass Coke bottle glasses, and she's going so slowly to get to the phone. It's just ringing and ringing. Um, and fortunately, her hearing is so bad that she doesn't realize they're a gay organization, and boom, we've got our donies. The gays rejoice. One of the miners, die, travels to London to meet the group, say thank you, and extend an invitation, but oops, he didn't realize they were, you know. A bunch of fruits. So he's a little bit awkward, but generally supportive and kind. And he wants to say thank you to the whole London gay scene. So they bring him to a drag show and coerce the MC into giving him five minutes on the mic. And he does a pretty good job charming everyone in the crowd, which is at first skeptical. You know, coal workers aren't really known for their poise, you know? Uh, do you remember the dad and the brothers in Zoolander? So now it's like game on. They're officially chums. And LGSM is semi-cordially invited to the Delice Valley as guests. So they pack up their big gay bus, having also picked up a pair of new lesbians, one of whom was in Harry Potter, the other of whom has really unfortunate white girl cornrows. And Joe has lied to his parents, telling them he's away at culinary school, except they're British, so they call it cooking college. And they road trip down to South Wales. Of course, they get there and they're like, oh my god, because amongst the gorgiosity of the green hilly landscape, they had arrived in Nfrun, and it's like gray, desolate little place, and they stick out like a bunch of sore thumbs on limp wrists. But they, you know, put their chins up and they head into the lodge and they're greeted by the committee, a motley crew of empathetic and beleaguered mining folk with questionable haircuts and good intentions. In the hall, all, all the village's families are together, drinking, listening to the Welsh equivalent of bluegrass, being all hetero, and now it's Mark's turn to be shoved onto the stage of a potentially hostile audience. Anyone else feel like appointing themselves leader? Uh, nope, it's all you big guy. So up he goes, gay ambassador, and he does a truly abysmal job. Like, not funny, not charming, doesn't win anybody over. The rest of the night, everyone is segregated. And then they all have to cram into one room to sleep on the floor at dies. The next day, the committee and LGSM are taking a walk together in the hills. And Mark is telling Di about his feelings. He says he grew up in Ireland and he knows where arguing gets you. Speaking, of course, about the troubles. And Di tells him, look, we've got this hundred-year-old banner we bust off for special occasions. And it's got two hands that are shaking. And, like, that's what it's all about, man. Unity. Groups working hand in hand. That's the only way this is going to work. 
Meanwhile, the others are hearing about the situation on the picket line and how cops have arrested and held the loved ones at, uh, from the picket lines. The gays tell them, uh, no, they can't do that. So Sean, one of the best characters, goes down to the station and she's like, you can't be doing this. And she's like pounding her fist on the counter and the cops are forced to let the miners go. Rejoice. Back at the lodge, they're celebrating the dude's freedom, but the miners are still not being friendly with LGSM, who are bringing in warm clothing and food, by the way, until they find out that they'd still be in jail if the gays hadn't told Sean what to say to the cops. All right, fine. A single miner buys a single pint of beer for a single gay. A pint of beer. A pint of beer for a single gay. And, hey, it's a start. But they're still not really socializing altogether, but for some of the committee members... The old slow lady is talking to the lesbians, and she's like, I heard something about lesbians that really shook me. It can't be true. Are all lesbians really vegetarians? Cornrow Girl says, actually, my girlfriend and I are vegans. LOL. Shout out to all my plant-based sapphics out there. In the kitchen, some of the committee peeps are trying to figure out who will be taking in the guests in their own home so they don't have to keep sleeping all together and dies. And the sour-faced ginger with a bull cut says she doesn't want any gays in her house because she doesn't want to get AIDS. You know, people in the 80s really thought, and like some people still think, that you can get AIDS by breathing the same air as a person who is infected. This lady sucks. She's got two minor sons and is the wife of a minor who passed away and she's really bitter and awful and I'm glad they gave her the ugliest haircut. She's like, I don't care how much they've done for us. It's just some bandwagon shit. They're not our comrades. They're just tricking us to spread their agenda. It's a real piece of work. So Hafina from the committee, who, by the way, was Umbridge in Harry Potter, goes up to a crew of miners and she's like, you need to go mingle with the gays. The separate equal shit is not going to fly. One pint of beer won't cut it. And they look over and realize all the women have congregated around Jonathan because he's a really good dancer. Like, remember the, Cynthia? She's a really cool dancer. The John, Jonathan, he's a really cool dancer. And all their husbands suck at dancing. And Jonathan gets the DJ uh, to put on Shame by Shirley and Co. And he discos all over everybody's faces. And the girls swoon and the dudes are like, damn, we gotta learn how to dance. Of course, old Sourface is not engaging. She tells her sons no one will take the strike seriously as long as they're being backed up by perverts. The next day, LGSM heads back to England and the miners head back to the picket lines. LGSM is back in the streets with the buckets, and Joe is hiding all his photos and mementos. The weather is starting to turn as winter rolls in, and the committee has to bring in more food and clothing donations since the village has essentially been cut off. Now it's Christmas, and Nafina calls Jonathan, but Gethin answers, and Nafina, detecting his Welsh accent, shows him the love and kindness he never got as a gay child growing up in Wales. She even wishes him Happy Christmas in Welsh, which I tell you is a wild language. Because of this, Geffen goes with them when they return to the Delights Valley after the holidays. When they get back, they find that things have gotten really, really bad. Even the bus that the miners used to get to the, or used to take to the picket line has broken down, which is horrible because the bus is also used to take food and provisions to the most remote villages in the valley. So Mark has a fire lit under his gay communist ass, and that night during the socializing time, he hops up on a table to make a speech much better than the first time in which he says they haven't done enough. It's not enough to always be defending, he says. You have to attack and push forward. So he promises to do something so spectacular that the National Coal Board will be pushed to their knees. The hall erupts in applause, and there we hear a single angelic voice ring out in song. 
I usually, I'm a choir nerd, but I usually cringe and get like idiot shivers when stuff like this happens in films, but this is actually really moving. The song is Bread and Roses, which has played an important role in the rich history of the struggle by labor unions. Uh, I believe it started out as a women's suffrage slogan from a speech by a female Polish immigrant in 1911. Uh, it was co-opted by the lady suffrages, suffrage suffragettes. Uh, and then it was written into a poem by Oppenheim and then put to music in the 60s. And the phrase is now most frequently associated with the textile workers' strike in Massachusetts in 1912. Anyway, the scene starts out with one unnamed very good singer beautifully delivering the opening stanza, then all of the other women in the room join in harmony. And I get goosebumps thinking about it because it's really pretty and really moving and reflects the oft-ignored history of women in the global labor movement. Also, if you didn't know, music has also had a huge impact. From work songs from the American West, think like I've been working on the railroad, to wool walking songs from Scotland, to spirituals sung by enslaved peoples, to sea shanties, to the Little Red Songbook from the industrial workers of the world and beyond. Music is a thing that unites people in their struggle. So anyway, that rousing chorus signifies a shift in the film. The mining community and LGSM are officially chummy now, for the most part. And there is a fresh feeling of optimism because Mark has made this pretty huge promise. There's a lot to be done. They have to figure out what this spectacular thing is going to be. Also, Gethin goes to see his mom after many years of estrangement, and that's a nice moment. However, Mrs. Bullcut decides to ruin everything for everyone by calling a major newspaper and tell them how they're being supported by a bunch of homos. So the next time the fellas head to the picket line, the cops are whistling and jeering and calling them like sailors, ladies, Marys. It's really cute. Uh, not. This article titled Perverts Support the Pits is read aloud by various characters about how the miners seemed desperate before, but now they're absolutely scraping the bottom of the barrel. Other union leaders from neighboring communities are now calling for a vote to decide whether or not to keep this relationship with LGSM going. But they're out there collecting for us every day, Dice says. And the other guy says, yeah, but it's the men. First they got their wives supporting them, and now this, we're being laughed at. It's about dignity. Ugh. Toxic masculinity, of course, is both cause and product of patriarchy, which is part of what, kids? Capitalism. In London, our queeros hear about the vote as someone tosses a brick and firecrackers through the window of case the word bookstore. As he's cleaning up, Mark realizes, hey, this might actually be pretty good publicity. They want perverts, we'll give them perverts. So the big thing that Mark promised and has to deliver on is going to be a huge benefit concert called Pits and Perverts. Now we get a montage of preparations being made. Posters being delivered by a cute boy, wheat pasting those posters under the cover of darkness. Mark and Mike going into a record label to see about getting acts for the show. And they're told there are no gay artists on the label. <laughs> oh well, sure. As they leave, Mark uses a sharpie to write a number for Gay Switchboard underneath huge posters for Elton John and Soft Cell. Gay Switchboard is a helpline that was established in the 70s. It's one of the first phone lines for LGBTQ folks in need to call. Uh, and remember, Elton John didn't officially come out until the 90s, so at that point, they don't even know that he's gay. So it's a little haha for us. Uh, now we see some of the crew from Wales pack up into a station wagon, and they're headed to London. They say they'll be back in time for the vote. Momentum is picking up, and the event is going to be held at the famous venue, the Electric Ballroom, with Brodsky Beat headlighting. They had that song, Small Town Boy. It's a very good song. It's very 80s. Now it's event night. They've got uh, good press. It's going to be real successful. 
Tons of people have tickets. They're showing up. They're selling posters. They got shirts. People are in costume. It looks like a really good time. And of course, they got the buckets out too. The buckets, the real stars of the show. And as Bronski Beat is playing, and they play Small Town Boy, again, a very cute song. Uh, the miners who learned how to dance are like picking up chicks with their sweet moves. Thanks, Jonathan. Even Joe has found a cutie to smooch on. Afterwards, writing I on the success of the night, they all go out on the town to see Gundan, Gundan, gay London nightlife. They even want to see the rubber scene, they say. And I'm like, oh my God, who told these little old ladies about rubber? While they're out, Mark runs into an ex-lover who says that he's on his farewell tour, which is coded language, of course, for that he's dying of AIDS. This affects Mark deeply. And this isn't where the film's, or this is where the film's second major conflict occurs. Joe comes home from presumably his first gay sleepover to find that his mom has discovered his stash of gay memorabilia and photos of all his friends. And they admonish him, they being his parents. Simultaneously, that evil and conniving homophobic lady from the mining town has sneakily convinced the union to push up the vote three hours, meaning the folks who have journeyed to London will not be back in time. There's no way. When they do arrive, the meeting is over and the union has voted to cut their ties with LGSM. Sean angrily dumps the thousands of dollars they raised at Pits and Perverts onto the table, and the homophobic lady's sons are like, oh, damn, maybe we fucked up. Back in London, Mark has realized that nothing really matters. Doesn't matter how hard you try. And uh, maybe they should all just give up. He eyes the AIDS testing awareness poster on the wall. Clearly, he is rattled. He blows up his friendship with Mike and the rest of them. He tells him to fuck off before he disappears. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. Very communist of you. Not. No, it's, it's normal to get discouraged. I understand. Definitely been there. Also, Gethin, sweet Gethin, who's finally made up with his mom and come out of his shell a little, gets jumped in the street one night. Steph tries to tell Joe by going to his parents' house, but his mom intercepts the message. In Wales, enough money has been raised to buy a new van to bring the miners to the picket line. They hate that the van says LJSM on it, but Fina tells them tough titties. You don't have to go. Next, Joe is in Bromley watching the news and finds out that the strike has officially ended. All the men will be going back to work. He sneaks away back to Wales to be there and stand with them in solidarity. At the, like, going back parade, he sees Mark looking all Marky on the other side of the crowd. And Joe's like, Mark, where you been, girl? And Mark gets all defiant, basically bullies Joe for not standing up to his parents. Life is short, he says. Mark must, like, really be freaking out about mortality. Sean drives Joe back to London and tells him that Gethin is in the hospital, so they go visit him. Gethin tells Sean to take care of Jonathan because he's HIV positive. Sean sits with Jonathan, and he tells her he was one of the first people in the UK to be diagnosed. And that is true. No one knows what's keeping him alive. He asks her what she's going to do now, and she says she's a wife and a mother, so she pretty much has to stick with that. Nuh-uh, he says, you can be those things and do more. Have you thought about going to school? So she brings Joe home, and they pull up to his parents' place in this bright orange van that says gay stuff on it. And oops, Joe forgot it's the day of his sister's kid's baptism, and everyone is in the front yard all dressed up with decorations and shit. And his parents look super embarrassed. And Joe runs inside, and his mom, like, snips at Sean to move the van off her property immediately. And Sean says, you need to appreciate him more. He's a hero. 
And Joe comes back out with a backpack and he says he's leaving home for good and he hopes he and his mom can be friends again someday. Mic drop. So off he goes and he finds Steph in a pub and their close friendship picks back up where it left off and it's real cute and also I love her bedroom. So now it's summer again and it's time for this year's gay pride parade and they're making flags and signs at the bookstore when Husha comes as Shane back with his megaphone but Mark Ashton who makes a very loud apology and is allowed back into the fold. At the parade, the organizers tell them they can't carry their signs because they have to be fun gay and not political gay, and if they refuse, they'll have to go back to the end of the parade. And the lesbians have formed their own women's group, and now everyone says, like, oh no, what do we do? Do we carry our banners or not? And Joe says, who gives a fuck about a banner? As long as we all march together. Yes, Joe, yes, very nice. But just then the organizer is like, oh shit, there's too many of you, you're gonna have to lead the parade. And they're like, huh? Too many of whom? And we see a long line of buses pull up, all full and waving signs that say minors supporting lesbians and gays. They flipped it. And the orange van pulls up, and here comes Athena and the rest of the old, the rest of the group. And the old lady shouts, where are my lesbians? And she's made them vegan food. And I'm freaking out. It's too cute. I can't handle it. And all the minors get off the buses, and it's tons and tons of different lodges, all there with their banners and marching bands to return the solidarity and march in the gay pride parade. Uh, and this actually happened, okay? In 1985, the London Gay Pride Parade was led by Welsh miners. Uh, and you see the banner that I was talking about earlier with the two hands, the hands that are shaking. Um, and and it's a true story, right? So we get little like text updates of what's going on with everybody. And Billy Bragg's Power to Union is playing, of course. Little on the nose there, but uh, you know, whatever. John, for example, went on to be the first woman ever elected to serve Swansea East in Parliament. Mark sadly passed away in 1987 at age 26, just days after his diagnosis with AIDS. Jonathan Blake, however, one of the first in the UK to be diagnosed with HIV AIDS, still alive. He was still alive when the movie was made, but I just looked and he's still alive, girl. So that's it. That's pride. Um... It's suspicious that Mark Ashton IRL was a member of the Communist Party and that was not mentioned in the film. He was the secretary, in fact, of the Young Communist League. The Guardian did an article when this movie came out in 2014 titled The Real Life Triumphs of the Gay Communist Behind the Hit Movie Pride. And, uh, and a friend of the real Mark said he was an everything person. He was an Irishman, a communist, an agitator, a lapsed Catholic who still went to mass very occasionally. He was charismatic. His communism governed everything he did. He spent a couple of months in Bangladesh in 82, and the poverty really politicized him. Okay, so why, then, was there no mention of the communism in the film? If communism governed everything he did, where was she? And it's likely because the film was produced by the BBC. See, big companies still stand to make money off of queerness, even though we're being, like, murdered and scapegoated, and there's legislation all over the place to try and erase us. But those companies don't want communism associated with their projects. It is still too scary. Another person who was an actual member of LGSM said, People were sick and dying and nothing was being done about it. In the film, we're depicted as good, fluffy people supporting the miners. But there's a clear strategy on Mark's part to align himself with the labor movement in order to get gay politics, sexual liberation, HIV and AIDS treatment onto the political agenda. The AIDS crisis was only touched upon a couple of times throughout the movie. There are definitely some good films and TV shows that exist about it, but this film skipped it in order to be that, like, fun, gay, feel-good, light-hearted film. 
this Hollywoodization of radical characters has also happened more recently. Like, there was the movie about the Chicago 7, one about Huey P. Newton, and others, for sure. It's a real shame, because it does a disservice to the memory of these very real people. And also, almost, uh, or most people who go see these movies aren't going to fact-check anyway. So, like, people watching Pride might get into gay rights, but they aren't likely to be inspired to get into communism, which is obviously by design. Anyway, let's talk context. This puppy came out in 2014, did meh at the box offices, but has 92% on Rotten Tomatoes and nearly all the stars on most reviewing sites. Other movies that came out that year include Interstellar, Guardians of the Galaxy, Gone Girl, John Wick, American Sniper, Grand Budapest Hotel, and Maleficent. In other world news, that was the year that the flight, the Malaysia Air, Airlines Flight 370 disappeared with 239 people on board. Uh, the pro-democracy protests in China started that year. There was an Ebola outbreak in West Africa. The little group called ISIS emerged as the, as the quote, Islamic caliphate, unquote. Uh, <laughs> Russian militants took over the capital of Crimea from Ukraine. Little topical action for you there. So, so that's it. For me, for right now. Uh, remember, Pride at Work is presenting this film on April 15th at Red Ink. Should be a cute time. You should go. If you like what we do, please consider visiting our Patreon and signing up. For as little as a dollar a month, you get access to more content. And we'll send you a little gift. And if you don't like what we do, please consider shutting up.